Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man, a podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan interviews artist and singer-songwriter Audrey Asad. And in this episode, they talk about repressed anger, pain, trauma, listening to your body, and listening to your doubt. And in this is where we can find our hope and where we can find our prayer life. Enjoy. Well, welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man. I am especially excited about this episode because all my friends know I am a giant Audrey Assad fan. <laughs> and now I'm in your studio. Yeah, welcome. This is so cool. Thank you for having me. This I'm is amazing. excited to have you. You're welcome. I feel like I'm kind of holding you hostage already. I, was, I moved to Nashville and it's kind of like, you know, with this whole agenda that we have to be <laughs> totally BFF now I'm, in I'm real down. life. Let's get matching tattoos. <laughs> seriously. Seriously. I need matching tattoos. That's know, amazing. Too. I'm on a mission to find that person in life. I haven't found them yet. Did, were you, did you have matching tattoos? I don't have it. Yeah. I just, I don't want to have like just a tattoo by myself. I'm like, I need right. someone who's like, I want to have that too. Yeah. Would it be like one of those whole things like where you have like half of an image and the other mm. or something like that? Or is that too, I don't know. That too far? Um, yeah. I don't know about that. I was thinking more like another person who'd like to have like a Tolstoy quote in, in, on their arm. There you something. go. Okay. That's yeah. cool. That's that cool. That would be really interesting. Uh, that, that would be interesting. I yeah. love that. Or a, How picture, are you? a picture of Tolstoy. Or a picture. Now that would be an amazing tattoo. It really would. I, I love him. So. Uh, yeah. Tolstoy. Amazing, yeah. I actually, um, this is a little random, but an image of Tolstoy and everything. I just recently saw the coolest tattoo I've ever seen. A guy who has, you know that famous shot of Johnny Cash flipping off the camera? Mm -hmm. He has it on on his calf, and it takes up his whole calf. I love that. Like, I thought that was objectively the most badass tattoo I've ever seen. (laughs) I hope I get to see that someday. Right, right. I wonder if, I don't know if I could pull that off, but that's like... I That's feel like just awesome. by doing it, you're officially pulling it off. That's true. Fair enough. Fair, like if you like, just, just by going there. It takes real guts to do that. So, yes. you know, once you do it, that's like you're leading with something real, you know, ballsy. And I feel like people respect that. Well, unless they hate tattoos, which a lot of people do. Right. But, as they do. Yeah. As they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad to be hanging out with you. Yeah, How are you doing? Because we just yeah. got here. I am doing spectacularly well right now. Um which is really nice because I wouldn't always answer that way. Yeah. Who would? But um, yeah, just in a really fertile and thriving space, Mm. emotionally, spiritually, um, musically. And that is is really nice because it's been a very sort of long few years um, Mm. on several levels. And it still is. I mean, we're... I'm sure we could talk all day about the political stuff and the social justice things and Mm. the things that keep me up at night no matter how well I'm doing because they have to. Um... But, but even with those things involved, I feel like I'm coming to a space where, I said this to a friend yesterday, I've lived a lot of years turning off all the faucets yeah. in my heart, like everything, whether it's my anger, my desire, like all those mm. things are things that I'm afraid of, so I would just kind of keep the faucets off. But as you know, it's like when you do something like that, you back, you put the dam up and eventually right. the river just like runs through the dam. So and that's kind of vague, I guess, but... Um, I sort of experienced that dam breaking a few years ago, especially with anger. Hmm. And now that I've really exercised that, I've given it a place at my table. Yeah. I'm finding that I am integrating to a point where I have way more contact with my emotions than I ever have, but they do not run my life. Hmm. 
unlike when you shove them down and they kind of run you, but in the background. Yeah. So that feels amazing. I just feel very present, very in my body, very settled, mm. uh, even when things are unsettled. And that is a very new reality for me. Wow. I'm hearing all this and I'm so, <laughs> I'm so envious. Every okay. <laughs> Fertile and thriving place and then descriptions of being settled in. I mean, like, I'm... I'm curious because, like, I'm a, I think I'm a person who's faultlessly polite and okay. therefore a major repressor and mm-hmm. stuffer, which is responsible for most every major issue in my life historically. I'm curious as to what got you there in terms mm-hmm. of the dam breaking. Like, yeah, what, I'll tell what you. What was the catalyst for I'll that? I'll tell you. I remember the moment. I remember the moment it began. Because I have this great um, counselor I had been seeing on and off for like seven years, just like as I needed to, talk therapy, you know, nothing real intense. Um, And he is this delightful, fatherly older, but not fatherly like that's all that he is, but Mm. he definitely has that tone and his, the way that he counsels and just a wonderful person who I really trusted. And there came a point, this was probably five years ago. That I went to see him four years ago. I don't remember. I was already experiencing a lot of um, existential angst, which I will always have, but yeah. hadn't really given voice to. Hadn't really engaged with those questions out of fear and you know repression and all that. And I was already feeling that, and it was starting to really like ramp up. But what what ended up actually um, uh, catalyzing this journey that I've been on is that I went to see him, and I was. I had had a latent awakening to feminism mm. because I really wasn't raised in a feminist, I mean, anti-feminist environment, entirely anti, antithetical to that, I would say. But I was starting to see the disparage, uh, the, the discrepancies and the sort of disparities uh, in my industry. Mm. And really, I was like remembering my whole career and going, oh my God, that was that. Like, that was sexism. That was this. And I knew there was something off. I knew there was something off when the head of my label called me up and said, come in here. And he was like, I've dropped women for being far less opinionated than you are. And I need you to just like calm it down. You know, I mean, I'm like, oh, oh my God. Like, I know what that is. So I'm in this guy's office and I am like raging, like yelling in his face. I don't know what's happening. I'm like blacking out from being pissed. And he's like, I'm going to have to refer you to somebody. <laughs> wow. Seriously? Yes. He goes, you need a trauma therapist. Mm. This is above my pay grade because what you're exhibiting physically, even in your body, is like, I know there's trauma there. And so he referred me to someone who I dilly-dallied about seeing because I was terrified of what that would mean. I, yeah. was, I don't want to know what's in here. Like, I didn't like that feeling. That was terrifying, sure. you know? But I finally did go see her maybe a year after. Um, and that was really where... I got in touch with my anger about many events in my life, many situations, and a lot of real trauma. Um, you know, being abused in high school, like that kind of stuff that I, mm. I had talked about, but I had not actually engaged with my feelings. Yeah. I had a story and a narrative about it that I had kind of over time become comfortable with mm. so that it could keep me like from feeling what I really felt. And until I was able and willing to go there, um, there was just no hope for a full life. And I think mm. I, I had talked to this therapist and realized, like, I've got to do this if I want to feel the full spectrum of joy. Because I'm actually, like, a really numb at the time. Numb and kind of, like, even keel, but out of self-preservation. But I actually have a really wide spectrum of emotion. Mm. At the time, I mean, I barely emoted with my face. And now I'm, like, I sense myself speaking and I can feel my eyes lighting up and they're widening. And I'm, I'm like, my whole body is open 
in a People way, can't see right now, but it's true. Yeah. It's really true, you guys. My eyes are really big right now. <laughs> but that has that's a change mm-hmm. because I really I had a monotone way of speaking. I was I was just shut off. And so once I became angry, it paved the way for wholeness. Wow. And I am a big proponent now of, of trying to help people correct their language about anger because anger is not synonymous with things like bitterness or contempt yeah. or whatever, um, dismissiveness, derisiveness. So those are all things that can be motivated by anger, but anger itself is neutral. It is not bad. It is not good. It just exists. Mm. And when we demonize it, when we shove it down, it runs our life in the background and can do all kinds of things. We can act out or we can act like me, the opposite of acting out. I mean, the opposite of acting out. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of the, the moment that started everything. I'm fascinated by this on so many levels. For one, I'm just, I'm thinking, Audrey, that, because um, I feel like you just exude such vulnerability. And you always have in your career as well. So I think it's, I just think it's interesting because like also, and I mean, not like in a, you know, in some massive way, but when you're living a public life, what I do in terms of like writing and speaking, I mean, I kind of, I'm always, I always find myself cutting to, I need to have some sort of understanding of myself and my life and a narrative Mm -hmm. and and a way to kind of fit things in in a way that makes sense. But it's interesting how like you can skip those steps, the way that you described, especially like you would talk about some of these things before you like, you've talked about them. But it's so different to kind of do that intellectually versus, you know, the body does keep score yeah, and we exactly. are like, there's a very different way of processing a deeper level. I just, I just feel like I've spent so much of my life assuming that I was in a healthier place than I was mm-hmm. because I always do that. Yes. Because I will acknowledge a thing out loud, you know. When you're on a level intellectually where you can sort of examine things from a safe, cold distance, like a doctor, you know, and it's different to be the patient. Right. And I think we play the doctor for ourselves a lot and we don't really embody the pain enough. And, uh, it, there are layers though. I had to go through whatever phases I went through to get to where I am. And I'm sure in five years I'll be saying more and different things about it. Cause these things are not, um, I'm not, a, I'm not a person who believes that, you know, you, you confront your emotions about your abuse or whatever, and suddenly it's not a thing anymore. Yeah. There are just neural levels uh, that have to be rewired on a, such a microscopic level that you don't do that overnight. Mm-hmm. All those years of functioning with a certain narrative and a certain way of coping take that much time to be redone and so you just have to be present excuse me I'm like uh, you have to be present and diligent to just staying um, staying in yourself and and in those things when they arise and you go oh I haven't felt this way in a while and I'm learning to do this when I feel an emotion rising up that I might not naturally want to engage with and it's usually grief or anger right and I'm starting to stop and say, like, what are you trying to tell me? And why are you here right now? Yeah. Um, man, and listening to my body has been a big deal because I've never done that. I've always been a very... I actually do struggle with literal dissociation and have for a very long time. I mean, it, if I go through a hard thing, like a really heartbreaking thing, I start to have dissociative experiences where I look down at my body and I'm like, I'm not in it. I'm not in here. I'm like floating up by the ceiling. And I mean, that is like, I never had any language for that till I started trauma therapy. I was like, oh, that's what that is. And now when it happens, it happened to me about two weeks ago. 
I went straight to the gym and I rode 7,000 meters. And I was like, mm. I'm in my body again. Yeah. I just had to get like somewhere where I could just move it and say like, what do you need? What are you saying? Um, and that's a, it's a very new way of living. Mm-hmm. But it is like, it's just, it's amazing. I feel mm-hmm. very thankful. It feels yeah. like such a life work to like, just to be at home inside your own body and to be integrated and connected. I mean, that's no small thing. It doesn't, no. it, I mean, it, and it's not easy now. No, I mean, it's not sure. easy now, even though I know what to do, but it's do, it's like a thing that I know I can access if I'm willing. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated that like by this idea though, that in, in particular for you, it was getting in touch with your anger mm-hmm. that allowed this forward movement mm-hmm. that the very, because you know, I mean, anger just feels so fundamentally negative. We have right. real reasons to not to want to try to manage anger. And I think especially for those of us who are people of faith in particular, it's the right. sense of that's it's mm-hmm. not good to feel this way. I should start quoting the promises of God, Bible verse. You know, like will myself out of this mindset. Right. And that would even seem like the Christian thing to do. Right. Based on what a lot of us have heard. Right. Yeah, I mean I think, you know, my therapist, the trauma therapist I was seeing at the time, I see someone else now. Um she's a believer and she was the one who sort of taught me that anger is not again it's not bad and in fact it only turns bad when you ignore it yeah um the only way to give anger its proper place is to actually engage with it it is a very um communicative emotion about a lot of things that we then have these other emotional mechanisms that pop up to sort of protect us from that feeling but that's that's all well and good when you're a child, when you need to survive something and your body comes up with these mechanisms to protect you so right. that you can literally live to be older. Um, and as she said, she said, look, you have to tell yourself, thank you for doing that for me mm. when I needed it. And now I don't need you. In fact, mm. you're driving my bus and you're like crashing into everything. I need you to get out of the driver's seat now, but but I want to honor you for what you did for me. Mm. And anger was the first thing that I could feel um, in a very long time. And so I had to just let it wash over me, man. I went through a very angry phase. Yeah, wow. And people are uncomfortable with it. Sure. Absolutely, because, you know, and I said to myself, like, I've spent my whole life caring about this. I'm just going to not, I'm going to live, I'm going to offend people. I'm going to have people telling me you're just going too far. Mm. Like you're living in this and you shouldn't be. And I'm not going to listen because I'm, I'm, it didn't work the other way. Mm. And it did, it did abate. Like I do get angry now, but I get angry and then I deal with it and then I move forward. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was just simmering under there. It was like a pressure cooker, you know? So I had to go through a little bit of a vent, like a little lava, like a little volcanic Mm -hmm. eruption to get that pressure out during that season like did, did that alienate people for a while like mm. was there a stretch or, or did or did pe- were people around you generally pretty well my closest relationships have been strengthened and nourished by me mm. just being more in touch with myself yeah um i would say on a career level yes there were people who were very put off by my tone on social media. Mm. I'm very much myself on social media. Yes, you are. More than and, anybody I know, actually. That's oh, wow. a true story. Everybody should follow Audrey in every conceivable <laughs> medium. For, for that reason, I just it's such an authentic well, Twitter's voice. Twitter's where I really get real. Facebook yeah. is a dialed back version because it just is a pain in my ass if it's, it's not. It's a zoo. So, it's know, a zoo. It's Everything <laughs> evil happens on Facebook. I'm on there too, but my Facebook friends know that. They, yeah, y'all know this I is right. It down. And on Instagram, <laughs> I'm a little more poetry and mm-hmm. kind of like 
image driven, obviously, because it's Instagram. Sure. Twitter is where I really speak my mind. And there were absolutely lots of occasions where I got a lot of pushback, but I, I sort of let go of caring. I was like, yeah. I mean, you, you matter as a person, but yeah. your opinion in this moment is just not something that I am prioritizing. And that was new for me, you know. And now I feel like I've reached a place on there where I do speak out about things, especially injustice and war and such, because I'm a pacifist and I make no apologies. And I, but I feel like I'm also putting out um, joy and yeah. light into the world through the things I'm saying, where I probably went through a good two years where I didn't really, because sure. I just didn't prioritize that. Because yeah. it's just not what was there at the surface and I needed to just, you know, get get that stuff out. And so, yeah, I probably, I probably did something that they would, branding people wouldn't recommend, but mm. I found that, um, I am a person who cannot be a very distant version of myself on social media yeah. or I feel like I'm living a double life and not everybody mm. feels that way. And I respect that. It's just the way that I am. So, yeah, no, you are a uniquely authentic voice in that way. Uh, in a time where I think we, we, there is such pressure for image management and, I'm curious though, even as we, um, cause I feel like we've danced around that in a couple of ways now, like this notion that, well, I mean, it's, it's a heavy time. I feel like it's a heavy, it's a heavy moment. Oh, and, man. and I've said very honestly, and even this weekend when I'm speaking, um, I, I, I've never, I don't know when I've ever fought through more kind of palpable discouragement. Oh, and yeah. I'm just curious for oh, you yeah. because I feel like you, you do live with your eyes wide open. You're certainly aware of the world and you're engaged and maybe at some point even before the conversation's over I mean as a Syrian American and just the way there's somebody that just you're you're wide awake to all these realities and yet to be in this season that's fertile and hopeful and mm -hmm. you're a mom and you're talking about being into your body and things come I'm just how are you staying afloat right now what's keeping you hopeful in this moment oh well there was something I heard somewhere that I, I wish I could attribute this to the right person, and I'm blanking. A couple of years ago, I read that despair is a luxury of the privileged mm. because people who literally need to survive cannot afford to despair. Mm. Uh, that really spoke to me. It was kind of like that was the gospel to me in that moment. It was like, you need to do whatever you must to avoid despair, or you will be absolutely missing from the work that it takes to write these problems. You cannot get discouraged. You cannot get discouraged and stay there or you will be neutered. Yeah. And if, if what's important to you is to, and I'm speaking to myself here, if what's important, important to you is to, is to uh, be part of beating weapons into plowshares in a mm -hmm. metaphorical sense or a literal sense, because like Shane Claiborne does, then you have to find a way to avoid that. And so what are you, what do you want? You know? So that was kind of where I got to, I, I thought I have to ask myself what I desire above everything and then do whatever I can to avoid the things that would inhibit that. Mm -hmm. And despair is one of those things because despair is what causes you to say, I can't affect this. It's too big. And I believe me, I feel that. Okay. I feel that every day. I feel that every day. I saw a video a couple of days ago. I tweeted it to, um, Palestinian protesters in the midst of like tire fires yes, and tear oh, gas I saw that. and they're dancing that traditional um, Arabic dance called the Debka and it's one of the most powerful things I've seen in my life um, and I thought maybe they don't even have music like they put music over that track I kind of wish they hadn't mm -hmm. because it to me it was even more stark to listen to it or to watch it without that sound because it is instructive 
Um, Fred Devine just introduced me to someone named Alan Watts. Have you ever heard of him? He's a philosopher. I don't think so. Was well, a philosopher um, who brought popularized like Zen philosophy in the okay. West. And he talks about how life is more analogous to music than anything because life is essentially playful. It's essentially uh, experience and play. Uh, even the, and so I saw that that dancing and I thought, whoa, like that is resistance right there. Yeah. Um, it's refusing to be dehumanized to the point where you do not express your your joy, your power, your dignity in something that is one of the oldest ways of showing that, mm. which is dancing. And I just thought that's so, like, it's so powerful. And if they're not despairing, uh, then I I don't want to. Mm. Um, so it's a thing I have to manage and figure out in different phases. But that's mm. why I try not to be despairing. You know. Um. I am really intrigued by that idea, and I and I think it's true about despair and privilege. Because I mean, end of the day, and obviously not belittling anybody's struggle, but I mean, the highest rates of suicide, far and away, mm. are white men. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. which by every other scale, you know, inhabit the most kind of privileged space, and right. then but that also involves a lot of. Headspace oh and gosh. a lot of there's man. so much that I think I'm a feminist, but I think that the best feminism I've encountered is is equal parts challenging to masculine privilege mm. and sympathetic to their plight. Because mm. one thing I've noticed, and there's a person on Twitter that I follow named Garbage Oprah. Hey, yeah. Garbage Oprah. <laughs> um, she Anna. tweeted something the other day about how uh so the show queer eye which i love 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 that show has made me weep so many times i mean because they mostly deal with straight men Mm. not all they mostly come into these men's lives into their houses into their closets into their you know and they go what do we have here but they look beneath the stuff to the sort of emotional realities these men are experiencing and she said something very insightful she said you know i've been watching queer eye and i've noticed a pattern she said like white men, do you feel like your whole life you're basically settling for um what did she say? Oh gosh, I'm butchering it, I'm sorry, Gio. But um she said like you're settling for like second best all the time emotionally. You're always sort of being told to not engage with your desire, your grief, yes. your whatever. Yes. You've gotta like shove it down because Mostly the emotions that people attribute to femininity. Yeah. You are not allowed to have those, and therefore you live a sort of, like, bland life sometimes because you can't access those parts of yourself. And I thought, like, gosh, toxic masculinity, which is not to say that masculinity itself is toxic. It's not. It's just masculinity. But toxic masculinity as a dynamic in our culture, created by, you know, all these sort of patriarchal Mm -hmm. systems, doesn't just hurt women. Mm -hmm. It hurts men as much or more because they're sort of forced to live within these boundaries and these norms uh, emotionally and spiritually that are not healthy for them and they only perpetuate the issues but it's not just the women that are that's hurting Mm -hmm. you know i mean i yeah i've certainly gone through a phase where i'm like i have no time for you or sympathy for your problems but i am i'm past it i've realized that it has to we have to heal our culture yes with everyone involved but well, it's so interesting that, like, um, even connecting with what you said earlier about how anger was what broke you open, because mm-hmm. I think especially in terms of masculinity, I had a 
I really can't overstate the significance of this. Um, an experience several years ago. I mean, I guess when I was going through divorce and utterly crumbling, I was I was 36, and I had just started reading Robert Bly's book Iron John. Robert Bly's the poet. Okay. And uh, later on, like I've read plenty of Richard Rohr's stuff on like masculinity. Rohr riffs a lot on Bly. Mm, a lot of okay. people do, but Bly's kind of the source. Someone had given me that book. I'd had it on the shelf forever. And I had a really weird experience. I'd been in church the morning before at the Episcopal Church I was attending. And, uh, man, I feel like I'm telling a long version of the story. I'll it's get okay. to it. But they had read a, 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 the scripture about Jacob's well, Jacob falling the well. And that image was so profound for me of kind of the deep darkness. I, it just connected. I thought like there was something to spark. The next day, I have, <laughs> I was... In my despair, I medicated with pancakes at Cracker Barrel, as I'm prone to do. <laughs> this is, and I, I took that book with me, and I hadn't read it in, you know, I, I basically hadn't really started. And I always, I, I never don't start a book from the beginning. I, I literally flipped the book open. It makes me think of like Augustine or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And chapter four, this whole chapter on the road of descent, grief, and ashes starts with the metaphor of Jacob falling down the well. Like, it's like, it's the first thing that oh, I read. Wow. And what Bly describes in that chapter is how men in our culture, because we don't have anything like, and, and Robert Bly, this is not, of course, any of that kind of weird masculine, you know, you know, that stuff can get um, stereotypical. It's nothing like that. It's very powerful. But there's this whole idea that because men in our culture now don't have any rights of initiation, mm-hmm. And they're not able to be in touch with their wildness. Yeah, there is yeah, no, yeah, yeah. you're thrown out in the jungle when you're 12 or 13. Right. That you that you never go through that initiation. And what he says, and I remember, it was it reminds me of that scene in The Neverending Story where Bastion, like, he's he's reading the book and it's fiction, but he's now he realizes he's a character in the story and it gets too real and he throws the book up across the room. He says in the book that if you're a male and you did not go through a process of initiation that about the time you're 35 or 36 years old, that the chasm is so wide, like inside of you. And like, there'll be some sort of external crisis, Mm. but that's not really the thing. Like this has been happening forever because you've never been in touch with yourself. So then about that age is usually where your, your life is going to kind of fall apart in some way because like Mm -hmm. that's been happening. And I remember, I mean, I literally almost Mm -hmm. threw the book, like it Mm -hmm. freaked me out because that was, I don't know when I've had a more prophetic experience. Like, that was my life. It's like everything had been buried. Everything had been repressed. And by trying to be so polite and manage and to pretend that, you know, I had no wildness, that I had no rage, that I had no desire, like all of that was what was spilling out to the surface. And I just, I I mean, so I'm, and I still feel like I'm trying to explore what all that meant, like what to do with it. But I, but it's just interesting how, again, I think, it kind of brings that whole idea full circle mm-hmm. that if there's not proper space no. to give vent to these oh, things. They need voices. So many of us, male or female, are forced or compelled to live in such starvation. Mm. And I think about Jesus, who I have a very complex relationship to Mm. right now, but I think about him talking about abundant life. 
actually said to myself, I, every morning I get up early with my, my eight-month-old, and she gets up sometimes as early as 5.15. Today was one of those days. And so mm. we um, we head out. I take her to, I'm serious, I take her to Walmart. Wow. Every day. Because <laughs> it's so hot outside. I don't yeah. want to walk outside. So I lap her around in Walmart, and we talk to all the old ladies that work there. It's great. It's like my little funny routine. But then when she's, like, ready for her first early morning nap, we hit the foothills of the... Behind my house, I live mm. like up in the north side of East Nashville, and it's like right by all these like beautiful foothills and farms and such, mm. pockmarked with Republican signs. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, but I found like a few like cypress grove. I mean, it's amazing mm. out there. So I take her out there, and I get so much time while she's you know sleeping for forty five minutes to just to to feel and to think. And today I thought. I thought you meant, when you said life abundant, I thought that you meant later. Hmm. And I thought that you meant, like, I would have an abundance of the virtues or Hmm. abundance of, like, spiritual insight, like, in this way that my community would approve of, or, like, an abundance of, I don't know, um, spiritual success, I guess. But here, in my total unknowing of things... Which you know, if you're out there, God, if you're real, if you're like witnessing my life, you know that the weight of my unbelief is heavy and Mm -hmm. that I do not come to you with some kind of certitude about you anymore. Um, But I feel so uh, full and yet like open, completely open and it feels abundant and there's like nothing here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've cleared it all out. Mm -hmm. Like I threw it all out there and now it's empty, but I feel connected and integrated and I feel such grief that we do not know how to lead each other to that well Mm. I hope that my life will be one in various ways that does that because I I've experienced what it's like for someone to come alongside me and say like hey your emotions not only matter but they are you know they are controlling you yeah because you're not letting them out and I hate that. I hate that for men. I hate that for women. I have a son, you know, who's four. And God, I just like, I tremble to think what will happen. I know what will happen when he's leaving the the, the nest. Mm. He will go out and hear you're a baby because you're crying. He will hear yeah. this, that, and the other. And I will have to gently reinforce what we've been trying to teach him, which is that his origin and his destiny is love. Mm. And that his feelings are important you know and I'm like I'm gonna have to like not force that on him but just underscore it throughout his life and hope and pray that he finds the voices that he needs because I can't always be that person you know Um, I'm not trying to have like an Oedipus situation here and so (laughs) um, anyway I just grieve that I hate it and it's one of my sadnesses that I think drives me to action in terms of just speaking my own story Mm -hmm. because I want other people to feel that freedom Mm -hmm. you know but it's, it's a process and Sounds like you're on that road as well. I'm just, I'm thinking right now, just uh, that it never hit me this way before, but just wondering if part of that, the idea of the abundant life is, you know, literally it just, it's it's full of everything. If abundance is, right. you know, feeling all of thing, all the things in the fullest possible way. Oh my gosh. Experiencing full. Well, think about um, the incarnation for a minute because... Have you ever read any of Benedict or Ratzinger's work on the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy? Yeah, absolutely. So he really describes the humanity of Christ really well. 
Um, so anybody who's out there looking for a book about that, I mean, those books are great and dense, but really yeah. incredible. I use them more like a textbook almost because they're not something you sit, not me anyway. I don't sit down and just peruse those books like, sure. at, at my leisure or anything. Um, so, but thinking about the humanity of Christ and how emotions are a part of that humanity, I and mean, they're integrally a part of humanity. And, and if, if you actually think about Christ grieving so much that he sweat blood, then I think, wow, he, his body was uh, immediately and intimately in touch with his feelings. Wow, yeah. And that's what I need to be. Mm. I need to be, and that's why, okay, so like the Catholic tradition has people experiencing stigmata. And I used sure. to think that was so weird because I'm like, why would you want that? But then I thought, oh. You're, you're being like Christ in his humanity in that your body and your mind and your heart are at one mm. because you experience grief on behalf of the world and you literally bleed. That is what mm. Jesus did. Yeah. It wasn't like, I mean, I've so far long ago left the narrative that God was pouring wrath out on Christ. Right. But I do think that on the cross and in that uh, short little few days long season of his life, he was embodying the sadness, the shame, the darkness of our condition, Mm. and the grief of God. Um, And I just think, man, so the more I can get to where my body and my feelings are are living in one place and Mm. rising and falling in their natural rhythm, uh, that's, to me, that is an imitation of Christ that I didn't know how to strive for until recently. That's so powerful. never heard it framed that way that part of what it would be to live in the imitation of Christ would be to enter that depth of feeling mm-hmm. and to be that connected yeah. with one's own body. I mean, <laughs> that's definitely not the narrative that no, most of Well, us... people are so afraid that that's, that's giving too much room to your emotions. Right. And I know right. from experience that giving no room to my emotions, mm-hmm. I've said this several times, but caused them to run my life in the background like a yeah. puppet master. And so I would do things and like almost be like, I don't even know why I'm saying this. I don't even know why I'm doing this. Why am I avoiding this person? Why am I avoiding this problem? Like, why can I not argue? Why can I not take criticism? Why can I not, you know, blah, 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 you know? And it's because I was shoving down my feelings too much. And so actually giving, you know, shoving your emotions into a closet is what actually gives them too much precedence mm-hmm. and too right. much room. Isn't that and interesting? I think, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's just the, the fact, the very, the very fact that something's buried. I mean, I just, my whole, the other, the other thing that was happening simultaneously during that whole phase, like when I was reading Iron John, you know, just everything was happening on the outside too, but the inward journey, I felt like I kept going to every scripture I could find about Leviathan, the sea monster, mm. and this—I just was drawn to this idea of like the monsters within, mm-hmm. and it's like the, the, to not acknowledge them, to repress them, is actually what empowers them. Yeah. So, ironically, mm-hmm. in the attempt to control them and to be in control, right. is you how we it. actually you end up living it. out of control. Yeah. You no, know, because we're so. But it's just weird because we flip that script. We're so afraid of our bodies. We're afraid our bodies would oh. mislead us. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, we associate all these verses about the flesh with the body, and that's right. false. I mean, not that the body's not involved with that, but that's not that's not what Paul was talking about. No. Absolutely, demonstrably not. Um, but Christianity has been plagued with sort of gnosis yes. over yes. over all the centuries, and I think Protestantism in particular still exhibits a lot of it. For but I sure. mean, Catholicism in the West does too. Like it's it's you know, um, Catholicism in the West is increasingly sort of affected by mm. the Protestant culture we live in, and I don't, yes. I actually don't dislike or disapprove of or whatever like protestantism or catholicism or but i think it's fascinating to see that the sort of head above body um ethos of protestantism 
uh, affects culture because our country is so steeped in that particular expression of Christianity. And and I think um, when we have reduced religion to a system in which we we, we sort of win our entrance to the afterlife by the correct set of beliefs being all kind of in a row, Mm -hmm. we have made it an exercise of the intellect. Yeah. And, like, it's also an exercise of the will, which is funny because I grew up hearing the Catholics are, like, saved by works and whatever. I go, that's a work, too. Mm. It's a work to convince yourself that you've got to, you know, check these lists. Like, you've got to believe this about Christ, and you have to believe this about God, and you have to pray this thing, and you have to, Mm. like, you know, this is how you get there. Mm -hmm. I go, that is so... Gnostic. Yes. Your body has to be part of the whole of redemption. Yeah. Like creation has to be part. My body has to be part of it. Syria has to be part of it. Mm. Um, it's all involved. Yeah. And until we get that way, we are not living abundantly at all. Mm-hmm. Like we're living in a literal organ, a physical organ in our body, yeah. our brain, yeah. you know, which is still the flesh, you know. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm still learning about this, but I just know for me, my religion has to include everything. Yes, yes. But I just keep thinking of the word, just disembodied. That's what it is, yeah. disembodied. Yeah. And Jesus and when, was the opposite. That's right. And, then, and when, we're not, and when we're not in touch with our own bodies, then we're not in touch with the bodies of the world around us, oh, which yeah. is, I think, where we really get the stakes of this conversation wrong, is that, you know, I think even talking about therapy and this inward journey and all that, like... I just think I still don't, I still tend to default to thinking as those things as anything that involves self-care still feels a little selfish uh-huh. to me and not getting that like, okay, unless I process my own emotion, my own trauma, unless mm-hmm. I go on this journey, I'm of no use to anybody else. Right. Like, like right. nothing, like in terms of the ways that we're all connected, if we don't deal with our own issues in this way there is no place from which to serve or to love or to care. Like I just, I don't know. I think especially for those, you know, and of course with my background in ministry, it mm-hmm. makes sense to me that that's where some of those default settings are. But I feel like a lot of people live that way. Well, I can't do that. I've got, um, like, like it would be somehow, uh, entitled or self-important or something to go on that road. When reality, like this is the only way we we're, we will connect to other bodies, how we'll learn to care for other bodies. Describe your own relationship with Jesus right now as complex. Yes. Do you want me to elaborate on that? I would love for you to elaborate on that. (laughs) Just making sure. Um, Okay, so, I mean, I live with unbelief now. Mm. As almost like instead of the absence of something, it sort of has a presence in my Mm. spirit. And I tried for a really long time to stop that and to cure myself of it. And I've realized that I can't. It's just part of my humanity and maybe some people don't live with that much of it I just do I just do I I um, have learned that I exist with that and so I'm like trying to find harmony within it and so my relationship to Jesus isn't complex in that all of the things that used to work to sort of make me feel like yes this is the story of the universe this is my story this is this 
they just don't work anymore. And so I'm always trying to find new ways to connect, you know, new ways to connect to who Christ is. And even in the presence of unbelief where I go, I like, okay, I don't know if I believe this, you know, that that's like my daily reality. As I hear, th- I, I'm compelled towards this thing. I don't know if I believe it. I don't, how am I supposed to believe that? But I'm compelled and I'm drawn and that's the way I live. And so it's this kind of tug of war. And so I've started to go, okay, well, maybe I just need to not listen to my unbelief so much in the sense that maybe this isn't about belief right now. Hmm. Maybe this is about um, dreaming, you know, about what I want. What is? What do I hope Jesus is like? What do I hope God is like? Mm. Um, how do I dream about that in a way that impacts not only my uh, emotional and spiritual health, but but the justice and the sort of verdance of the world, yeah. uh, um, or ness I guess, of the world around me. Um, and I think it's just complex in that it is not uh, cut and dry or easy because I'm constantly having to sort of find ways to stay close Mm. to something and someone and a story that to me on an average day makes no godly or earthly sense. I'm just like, I don't like, I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't want to be a nihilist. I I did it and I hated it because I was like, this is so depressing. I want to be connected to people and to whatever is benevolent and transcendent. And if God is, if God is a God that is noble, then I want to know God. You know, I'm not a not a seeker. I'm not like not trying. I'm not not desirous. But for whatever reason, I just don't get that same sort of sense of things that a lot of people seem to. And I used to feel really guilty about it. And now I just go like, well, it's just not there for me right now. And I'm going to just be compassionate to myself and say, okay, well, whatever you can do, whatever you can assent to like do it and and just be okay with it because I, I feel like it's the only way I pray mm-hmm. if I give that permission to be there if I give myself permission to pray in such a way where it sounds like this is how I pray I'll be like I was at mass on Sunday and I said like during the Eucharistic prayers and stuff I said oh I don't believe in that I don't believe in you I don't believe anything but I'm here because I really want to um, so I'm just going to keep asking for not proof, but encounter. Mm-hmm. And and then I do have these little moments where I'm like, I feel connection. I feel something. And, you know, it's interesting. So I've been thinking a lot about the concept of mirroring. Yeah. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, you yeah. Know what so, like, when mothers, and I'll say it for anybody who might be listening who doesn't isn't familiar with the idea, but when mothers have babies, they mirror them from a very early age. It's how, um, it's how young humans get their sense of self-worth. And it's, it's imitation, uh, approval by imitation. And so, you know, we all have, we grow up out of that moment or we don't experience that kind of bonding or whatever. And that impacts our, our life. And then we have other mirrors that are kind of like held up to us. And religion has a lot of those. And we have our own and abusers hold a mirror up to you. Like these things all just sort of impact how we view ourselves. And uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is how God became Jesus became human and maybe that was him mirroring us Mm. so that we could see ourselves therefore we could be connected because really what holds me back from connection is often it's shame and it's Mm. guilt and a lot of times over things that I shouldn't feel those things about you know and so I'm just trying to focus on like being as completely honest as I can in my prayers um because if if I've been told that all my life that God is all-knowing 
then what does it matter if I say anything? Like, I can say anything. I can just say, put it all out there, and I go, that's an encounter I'm interested in. Yeah. I think it's like an encounter God is interested in, is everything that's there. Because anything else is pretense. And what's the point of pretense if God knows everything? You know? So I don't know. I just have like a very different prayer life, a very different relationship to the whole thing. But it's the healthiest I think it's ever been. I had this image when you were talking about being at Mass, because I'm imagining you saying the written prayers out loud. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking. But then, then as there's this kind of inner exchange with God, it made me think, I love Terrence Malick's films and mm-hmm. Tree of Life in particular. Oh, so and I, I just, I'm thinking about that scene, mm-hmm. the little boy's on his knees and what he's praying out loud is the, now I lay mm-hmm. me down to sleep prayer. And then mm-hmm. in the zoom out, what you hear in the inside is the, who are you? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to know what you are. And this idea that like there's a mm-hmm. that there's an there's an inner prayer yes. that runs so much deeper than what what is prayer to you right now? What is prayer? Hmm. Um, the search for connection, I guess, um, because. I don't feel very connected to God most of the time. And so my prayer is a search, whether by words or by listening or by physically using my body to whatever it is, light a candle, burn incense, I don't know, is trying to commune. Um, I'm trying to commune on a level that's beneath words, you know. And words can help you get there, but sometimes they really don't, you know. And, um, yeah. That's the only way I can put it, is I, I want communion, and so that's what prayer is for, for me, is, is trying to, it's just putting myself in a place where I'm available to it, when it might strike in any kind of sens- sensual way, you know? What is the relationship then, if any, of liturgy, of, of mm-hmm. written prayers yeah. to that, like, does it... Are they connected? Does it take one to get to the other? Is it irrelevant? It, like, you know, for me, it is a little complex there too because I just, I always have such a funny feeling if I'm saying something out loud I don't believe yeah. or feel belief about. Even I'll, Maybe that's an accurate way to say it. I don't feel like I believe it. I don't feel mm-hmm. assured of it. Um, but I do find that actually the, the sort of roteness of it, which some people find to be really bad, mm-hmm. you know, people in the Pentecostal tradition might look at that and say like, you're just vainly muttering things. And I go, well, aren't we all? Uh, uh, No offense. (laughs) We all are. We all are. We're all doing things and saying things and making sounds and moving our bodies in such a way that we hope will channel something, some kind of connection to what is lying above, you know, and so, or beyond or whatever. And so I go, for me, the rosary works because yeah, I'm saying the same prayer over and over, but I'm, I'm facilitating an environment in which my mind can be set free from all the sort of cyclone of my own thoughts and my own worries and maybe set free to actually encounter. Mm. Um, I think it's effective. I think liturgical prayer and Pentecostal prayer are effective for a lot of people for the same reasons, which is that they're repetitious. (laughs) It's a psychological device. Exactly right. I, I, I so believe it. I mean, like, I always talk about my Pentecostal roots, but you know, right now, and I, this has been true for years. I mean, to to an to an embarrassing degree, I'm going to say that right now, 
I think 90% of my prayer life is the Jesus prayer. I mean, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, prayer. Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a good one. It's basically my prayer life. And what happens is I say it over and over and over again until mm-hmm. I start to sink down to myself. And I, it, it's just, I've never thought about that before. I think it's so true, the parallel between that and speaking tongues. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a way of transcending the intellect. It is yeah, a way of transcending the mind. that can help. It's weird because it does. It hacks and sort of transcends your mind, but then your whole self comes to play in a way that a lot of times just sitting there and going, God, we just like, I lift this up before you. It doesn't always like leading with that foot is fine. And I need that sometimes too, but it doesn't always give your whole self a chance to just encounter in a way that repetition actually does. And that's why every religious wisdom tradition has that device Mm. in some way. And I swear to you, I think Baptists, they say, Jesus, we just, and I go, I, a lot of people like to make fun of the we just, but I'm like, but it's a, it's a little device. That's it's right. a little thing that we, we insert mm-hmm. to feel like we are praying mm-hmm. and that's not bad. It's right. just part of being a human being. Gosh, like, why are we trying to pick apart how people do it? If they need to do it and they're doing it, then like good for them. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have any interest in being derisive toward any prayer tradition no. because I think people do what they need mm. and that's wonderful and they mm. ought to mm-hmm. and if they evolve out of that fine yeah you know great so interesting to me in this moment just thinking that like jesus from that one statement in matthew 5 about or matthew 6 rather but about not using vain repetition as the heathen do that that the leap that we made is that mm-hmm. all repetition all is vain repetition well that's not vain. the idea <laughs> no 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 and i think a lot of that has to do with the goal of the repetition because mm. If the repetition is, if I say this enough times, God will approve and will will answer what yeah. I'm asking. If I do this enough times, then God will see that I'm devoted and He will, you know, not strike me dead with lightning. Mm-hmm. That's what I think Paul is telling us. Yes, yes. I think that repeating because you're trying to commune mm-hmm. is a totally different reality. Yeah. Um, repeating because you're trying to win and earn approval or to avoid you know, being struck down and smitten by God, right. then like, that's different. Yes. Pleading for forgiveness, trying to change God. It's mm-hmm. funny how even I'm praying the Jesus prayer. Yeah. I don't know how to even explain this, but have mercy <clears throat> on me, a sinner, is a very different mm-hmm. sentiment than for me. Because I, I used to like literally just spend hours and hours like pleading for forgiveness. Right. It is not that. Mm-mm. Asking for God to have mercy on me now is not trying mm-hmm. to get God to forgive right. me. That's no, not that's where that lands. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. I know you have to go we got shortly. About seven minutes. Um, we've come this far, Audrey. Like this is the most wonderful, just soulish conversation. I feel almost bad that we haven't talked about no, music at all. That's I mean, okay. I love Evergreen, Thank Audrey's you. last record. Please go get it right now. I'm. It's 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 you know part of the soundtrack of my soul. What are you working on right now, creatively? What's happening? Well, um, I have a few things simmering in the background i've been um writing a ton of songs about eden and the new creation Hmm. in every arena so i have you know my solo stuff which is sort of devotional and sometimes worship focused and then i have a side project called lev which is with a friend of mine well it has been in the past with a friend of mine named seth jones and um, I've been writing songs even for that project Hmm. that are it's like in sort of edm world music dance pop indie something and um i'm not good at describing that one yet uh but i'm even writing songs about you know uh 
that for this project and then I have a I'm just I'm just writing songs with a bunch of different people but all kind of focused around this idea of like the healing of creation mm. the return to Eden the origin in Eden which I think is a very poorly told story yeah. um, and so that's kind of just been on my mind a lot so I'm writing a lot and I'm hoping to release some new music as early as like February January maybe that's exciting um, what do you think's got that stirred up in you that well, I wrote Evergreen, right? And I write in themes, and I write in blocks. And Evergreen was sort of this tail end of the crisis, which, honestly, it's funny, because a lot of the circumstances are exactly the same. The unbelief is the same. The crisis is different, because I the crisis only existed because I was terrified of what people would think. Mm-hmm. That was the crisis. Terrified of what God would think, terrified of what people would think. Mm-hmm. That created the crisis. But once I let go of those things, I was like, oh, well, I can have all this unbelief and it's not a crisis anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just life. Wow. And so I wrote Evergreen and that was kind of the, the coming out of the tail end of that you know, process of releasing those things. And then I think it just created a space where I was able to dream about what would it be like to live in such a way that this is what I'm participating in. This is what mm-hmm. I'm seeing happen swords into plowshares and the healing of the earth um so it's just what it's just what i've been dreaming about you know daydreaming about and wishing for and so i'm writing a lot of songs about that and it's been really wonderful i mean i've i took about six months off of writing when i had the baby mila and uh it was kind of tormenting because it's just like i love to write but it was great because it kind of created this like this dam in the river, but in a good way. And so when I kind of came back to work two months ago, they just like started flying out, you know, wow. it's like, I wow. couldn't keep, couldn't keep catching it fast enough. So that's been really fun and also overwhelming, but really good. Mm. Yeah. That's exciting. I, I'm so excited. Can't wait to hear the new stuff. Are you Sorry are you everybody, but I'm going to send Jonathan some demos that y'all can't hear. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I will not be leaving those onto YouTube or anything. <laughs> Oh, that's that's wonderful. Thank I'm so you. pumped about that. Um, are, are you are you playing out right now much? Not much, no. Okay. Um, I will be in some in August, some in September, October, and then really nothing beyond that right now. Okay. So, uh, well, I got some stuff coming up in January. It's like every few months. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to stay home and just make more because mm-hmm. I, it's really where I feel the most free. So, um, yeah, more music. Um, I guess we'll have to have part two of this. Totally. Part two, part three, part... I mean, we're in Nashville now, so, like, I'm here, yeah. so we can do... <laughs> we can do re- recurring, you know... We can have, like, themes. That would actually be amazing. I would love it. I love talking about shit, so... I'm sorry. <laughs> talking about things. I love talking about things. <laughs> so you can funny. edit that out. No, that's a, that is a perfect place to land <laughs> this conversation, I think. Audrey, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a beautiful conversation, and just appreciate yeah. your hospitality and letting me come here, yeah. and in this creative space and just uh yeah just blessings on the new project Thank i'm pumped you. about that and excited we get to be friends me too, me too, me too. this is awesome yeah I'll, I'll talk to you again soon i guess thank you for listening today for more go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on twitter and instagram to support this podcast go to patreon.com slash son of a preacher man and help us keep this podcast going Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast can help you come to find the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.